Welcome back to the NeuroGether podcast. My name is Carter Smith, co-founder of NeuroGether, and I am joined at the hip with Ukarsh Gupta once more. How you doing, buddy? Hey, uh, I'm doing good. Actually, really excited for our second podcast. And uh, we have with us lovely Emily from hey. Agni Ruskin University. Emily here is a fellow PhD student that we have had run-ins with. We've shared an office space for all of five minutes that Emily has been in the office, but that's because we're not in the office too often. But Emily is a very interesting psychology PhD student, not technically neuroscience, but you know what? Same, same dealio, right? Same kind of... It's all linked. It's all linked, like, man. Brain areas yeah. and cognition. To right. be fair, like the whole idea of NeuroGether is to bring people together who are yeah. related to the sciences that deal with the mysteries of brain as such and psychology like come on we all know how linked it is with sure. the brain sciences absolutely and emily here i'm pretty told uh, we've talked about this a little bit before but you delve into green space theory right yeah so we're looking at how um outdoor environments can be beneficial for our attention um, and it's mainly dominated by the idea of sort of green space or n natural areas being good for attention. Um, but what my research looks at is the qualities that make both natural and built environments uh, beneficial for restoring attentional fatigue. Is this like green space restorative theory specifically? Or? So it stems mainly from attention restoration theory, which is the main focus, um, which was put forward by Rachel and Stephen Kaplan in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks at the idea that when we effortlessly tend to an environment, um, because it captures our attention, uh, it's known as a process called soft fascination. Uh, and what my research is looking to do is to see fascinating examples, both within natural and built environments, mm -hmm. um, and seeing if we can measure the effortless attention towards those environments uh, using eye tracking. Interesting. So is this kind of, um, I do something, something similar with audio. So I noticed that uh, people have, um, they have less attention to all the micro uh, aspects of audio within a very busy environment, like a city, when it's uh, very low, like green space, their restorative processes and stress seem to go down. Yeah, so the idea is that if you're in a, a natural environment that you find inherently interesting, mm -hmm. uh, then you're just naturally drawn to looking at your surroundings, you're interested in what you're seeing, um, you're not forcing your attention to be placed on any particular part of what you're looking at for any length of time. Okay. Um, and at the same time, you're allowed, your mind can reflect and wonder, so you can contemplate, and through that process, uh, it improves our attentional capacities. Is there a stress part of it is anything so there's involved? a there's a big offshoot so um the stress reduction theory uh, is a sort of alternative explanation to the attention restoration theory. sure okay um but we originally was going to look at stress um and how that played a part but because the main focus is on visual attention um, and changes in cognitive capacity or attentional capacity Stress was kind of put on the back burner, mm -hmm. so we could focus on the main, the main issues surrounding how what we look at can therefore influence our attentional capacity. Hey, I like both those. So if you're doing a, a stress study, definitely involve me in that one. <laughs> if you want cortisol involved, especially. Okay, well, I'll let you know if you yeah. get any cortisol involved. Yeah, it'd be good. Uh, otherwise, that though, what got you interested in this space? What got you interested in green space theory? Um, so largely it came from my supervisor who has been doing research on um, green space theory for quite some time. 
And I was more interested in, rather than running with the crowd who just want to look at nature and the benefits of nature, of course. trying to apply what properties that are intentionally beneficial in nature can we apply to the sort of man-made world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we look at fascinating built environments and being in Cambridge it's completely full of them kind of buildings. Yep. Um, there's history all over the place and there's a lot of buildings that are perfect examples of fascination within the man-made setting. Is it like an architecture kind of thing that you're involved in? Yeah. yeah, so it falls into a lot of architecture. Um, understanding sort of the history of buildings um, and how different architectural designs are more inherently interesting than others. Interesting, okay. Um, so like Gothic architecture uh, is definitely one that's high um, in fascination because it has a lot of self self similarity and repetition at different levels. Um, and the idea might be that starting to bring more of that kind of architectural design into our urban environments mm -hmm. um, may be a, an improvement in terms of how attentionally draining uh, cities can be. Fair enough. Is that does that become like a multiplicity like sort of aspect? Is that different colors, like different brick sizes and things like that? And that comes into it. That's it, it makes it more salient. Yes. Um, but a big part of what distinguishes fascination from salience is something that holds properties of soft fascination, captures your attention, but doesn't force your attention to be sustained. Ah, okay. Um, so if you have any, if you have a building that's too heavy in salient features, that's constantly trying to grab your attention sure. from different angles and that can become fatiguing because you're needing to use your top-down attentional capacities to stop and redirect your attention um, by those things that are grabbing it. That's fair. Okay, so if like we use an example of like a Sistine Chapel, like that's Michelangelo painted that and that's really interesting to look at Yeah. compared to that to maybe like the Ely Cathedral, Yeah. which is, it's there, you know, it's, it's the same color pretty much all around, it's... Uh, well, I'd say the Ely Cathedral would come under a fascinating. It would because uh, of historical properties, or uh, well, it's, it's yes, I think it was started in twelve A.D. or something. Very, very, very early. early the first yeah. first buildings of it, and obviously it's had time and time again. It's been rebuilt and had things added and refurbished, and it's. You may, living in Ely, take it for granted, but for a lot of people, when they stand and they look at it, it does capture their attention. For sure. Um, and allows you to sort of view it and reflect and wonder and has all the same kind of potentially beneficial properties yeah. as looking at a be beautiful nature scene. Uh, would you say there's a um, like a growing up effect then? Like simply because, I, I, again, like we both live in Ely, so we both have that sort of whatever, it's a big building in the middle of and brings a lot of tourists in. Maybe you do have a fascination yeah, towards so it. Yeah, so part of... Um, what comes into fascination is familiarity. So mm -hmm. things that become too familiar, just like with saliency, things that we're exposed to often can lose salience. So have a habituation effect. Yeah. So one thing that we look at um, in when we're collecting data is how much time people spend in nature, how mm -hmm. much time people spend in urban environments, um, and just seeing whether that comes into how beneficial the fascinating environments That's can handy. be. Is that like a standardized questionnaire that you have or is it just like one that you... Uh... Uh, so we ask um, just generally how many hours on average um, each week you spend outside in nature uh, and you spend outside in an urban environment. I bet that's gone down a bit since... Uh, yeah, uh, since <laughs> yeah so we've only just started data collection again. So uh, it's going to be quite... We had to stop um, halfway through data collection when all the lockdowns came into place last March. Right. So hopefully that's not going to 
lead to too many differences in the data they're collecting this time round. Be interesting to compare the two. Compare the two. Yeah, that's still good because maybe that could be like a, an unfortunate randomized control trial. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, an additional hypothesis on the impact of COVID. Yeah, <laughs> and you so you uh, you did your psychology degree, right? Yes. Uh, when was that? So I started in 2012 oh, wow. uh, here at Anglia Ruskin. So I've been at Anglia Ruskin nearly 10 years now. Nice. Um, yeah, and from the undergraduate, i done some research assistant work, um, but that was in a, a very different area of psychology. That was in consumer psychology. And was that with Catherine Jensen Boyd? Um, no, so that was with Magdalena. Oh, yeah, okay. um, so we were looking at gender stereotypes in mm-hmm. uh, advertisements um, and how that affects um, people's self-perceptions of how they can do STEM-related careers and jobs. Were you um, involved with the car salesman um, project? Um, no, that was. I think those were the ones following yeah, following ours. That yeah. was my second year research assistant. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you would have followed on on the research after yeah, you did I started it. my PhD, um, possibly. Yeah, I think it was 2017. Yeah, so, so I started my PhD in 2016. Okay, yeah, so, so just... So I'm definitely um, taking my time yeah. <laughs> to complete. You're very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm very com- maybe too comfortable. Um, but, yeah, with if... COVID hadn't occurred, then my data collection would be complete now and I would hopefully already be a doctor. Um, but we've just had to take a bit of a pause over the past year and get back on with it since we've been allowed to. Either way, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Like, we've all been affected by it in some way. True. Like um, my study, so since I'm doing a PhD as well and I'm in my second year and the first like 1.5 years of mine has been majorly impacted by COVID. But then, again, we need to find ways and improvise and just, like, get along and move on with the studies and then survive. But, like, Emily, like, your journey so far sounds so fascinating, which has the component of fascination itself. Yes. But, like, I'm really curious, how did you start developing interest in psychology as such? Was it at very early ages of your life that you got to know about psychology and then you thought that, no, I'm definitely going to do something in that area? Or was it more of a gradual process that developed you to other triggers or motivational information that you got from? Um, I think it just naturally is something that I was always going to do even before I really knew that that's the job that I wanted to go into. So as with a lot of the students that we have come into psychology at Anglia Ruskin, um, I was originally very interested in all the dark sides of psychology. So I'd watched every single serial killer documentary and read every book about serial killers and, and wanted to know and understand all of the most extreme ways in which the mind could work. Um, and from that, uh, I'd done some volunteer work as a teenager in the sort of the criminal psychology area. So um, I worked as a panel member for um, the Youth Offending Service. And okay. on there, we'd have um, young people who had been arrested for committing a crime, and they'd come to the panel and we'd discuss ways in which they could go forward. Um, so whether that was improving attendance at school, um, helping fix issues around the home or maybe just getting them to give back in some kind of community service. Um, So I originally wanted to go into sort of criminal psychology, um, but 
there's not as much opportunity to go into that kind of career as I originally thought there was. Um, a lot of the funding's been taken away um, for master's courses and largely they're not putting money into that pot at the moment. So I moved away from that. Um, I started working as a care worker um, when I was an undergraduate for a care home for individuals with complex needs and learning disabilities. Mm, okay. And that gave me an extra sort of um, interest in studying psychology. Um, we had only 16 people that our care home housed, but there was as many different conditions as there were individuals that we were supporting. Um, and that psychology and neuroscience could help me understand these situations that people were living in and how better to care for them mm. um, was really helpful. So understanding, for example, the reasons why, um, for example, we had a, 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 a supported individual with multiple cirrhosis um, okay. and they were unable to, to move anything under sort of their neck area. Um, and sort of learning about things like how it's the it's the mailing sheath that's deteriorated that stops the messages being sent from the brain to the parts of the body, um, and then even being able to sort of have conversations with the individual I was supporting about that sort of thing as well, and they found it really interesting to have a bit more of an understanding of the condition that they were living and experiencing. Um, so I think there's always been ways that what I've been learning in psychology I've been able to apply in what I'm doing outside. I could actually relate to that because um, during my first year here in UK, starting from 2018, January, I started working as a care assistant as well. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I worked as a care assistant for about one year, and then I was working in the dementia unit. Yeah. So I had a major interaction with people who are, who have challenged life with dementia. And such. Yeah. And then I think, like, I could see the pattern where, like, you're looking at the attention bit and then you've worked in an area with learning deficit. Yes. Whereas I'm working autobiographical memory and I'm dealing, like I dealt with people who were suffering from dementia. And, and having unable some, to sort of recall autobiographical Yes, memories. exactly. Yeah. So like I could potentially see how we are directed towards what we are. Yes. The experiences that we have. And understanding yes. sort yeah. of minds other than our own. Really. Yeah. Maybe it's because like you've seen it. And you've like experienced it almost in a way, like an empathetic sort of yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can ever really understand uh, any condition, mm -hmm. be it Alzheimer's, dementia, yeah. uh, learning disabilities, yeah. until you've worked one to one with individuals who have those conditions. Because there's no one definition fits all. Of course, there's no one treatment or care method suits all. It's very umbrella course. term too, isn't it? And like how you care for them is very different from person to person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you just have to step in and see people as individuals and mm -hmm. one question I get and you guys might get as well the moment that people just on a general sort of day-to-day -day ask you oh, what do you do and you sort of say psychology and they sort of cover their ears and say ah don't analyze me yeah all uh, the time <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and you sort of all worry time. well there's obviously a reason why you don't want to be analyzed but there seems to be this misconception that psychologists analyze people whereas I think that those of us who are actually in this line of work learn to put our own preconceptions aside yeah. and just to ask questions and learn from people rather than analyzing them um so and i think that working in care especially um helps you to do that especially when you're working with people who may not be able to verbally communicate mm -hmm. but you're still able to sort of get to know them through sort of other means of communication sure 
like um, uh, I remember when my grandfather's retirement home, uh, there was someone with Alzheimer's in there, and they would only talk like kind of uh, through coloring. Yeah. And they would you'd give them a bunch of crayons, and then they just start playing with them, and they'd be quiet. But as soon as like you know it was time to go eat or something like that, and you took the crayons away, you know it was very negative scenario they didn't want to speak to anyone else they just ate and go back to coloring or something like that and we looked at some of the images and she was actually like drawing people right she was trying to at least like as she was trying to draw people and um she was drawing people that she wanted to talk with but couldn't right oh that's sad oh yeah it's it's another i mean i'm sure you guys have seen the videos of when people with um, dementia are given music of that they used to listen to and it sort of connects it's so uplifting isn't it yeah. yeah, and it makes you realise that there's there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than a lot of people stop to realise. Yeah. I wonder, like, both, especially with Alzheimer's, I noticed that one of the first things to go is language. Language, but recent studies, like me coming from a background of having research done on bodily self-consciousness as well, yeah. like my time during my care work, I could actually see that uh, the residents, they were really, like getting those triggers from bodily cues as well so it's not just music interesting or it's not just like um some sort of just like a plain visual cue as well but like like emily said there's so much happening in the background that like you cannot really pinpoint but rather like try to explore and know more so like um so basically a part of my research is also like to eventually do a study on people with dementia or Alzheimer's to see if actually bodily cues can help better recollection. Yeah. And, and in practicality, in practical life as well, you could actually see that people, if they have certain touch sensations, say, for example, even like if someone goes to a beach, then they would like have the touch of a pebble and then they will have recollection of some memory back in the past that they never really recollected actively, but then that would just strike right away and then... That is yeah. just so fascinating. Like a tactile representation yes, of a memory. exactly. That is interesting. Because like, like that exists in audio. Definitely. Yeah. And it does for um, uh, olfactory senses as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of studies being done on interception right now. And yes. Interceptive sensory motor cues that comes from within as well as from the extraceptive, like adding to the extraceptive uh, sensation, sensation or triggers as such. Like it's just brilliant how our body functions and the brain kind of like regulates it and just yeah yeah so you often do find that it's easy for a lot of people to wipe people off as saying you know there's nothing there when particularly when people sort of particularly have alzheimer's or they've got a condition that makes them non-verbal in particular um but i think the great thing about sort of neuropsychology is we're able to determine more and more what is there that we that person just can't access Mm -hmm. um and we it, it's very common for if somebody's nonverbal to underestimate them and what their mind's capable of um and sort of having worked with for example um an individual with cerebral palsy who had very little um ability to move their body struggled with speech but had the mind of any other 40 year old lady that, that sort of you know and you could have laughs and you could have jokes and you know, sometimes you have a bit of a naughty sense of humour and stuff like that. But it takes that putting your judgment aside and letting that person communicate how they're able to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then you see a lot more than a lot of people would be willing yeah. to sort of expect. Um, and I think it's really beautiful. And I think that 
the more technology is able to help people to communicate mm-hmm. um, who aren't able to verbally, then the more we'll be able to help integrate people into our society. Mm-hmm. You bring up an interesting topic along with that, especially with the electronics, because that's a huge part of neuropsychology now, yeah. is starting to bring in these uh, almost AI-like things to help people move into back into society, especially people with like missing limbs. That's huge as well. But the, the bigger thing is, uh, you mentioned, kind of touched on it, like almost like consciousness exists in the brain, but it's not affected by neurological conditions. It's just a different way of them communicating through. So like the, the faucet's on, but the sink's not there. Like you can't get that communication out. Yeah. Yeah, It's just about finding different ways to sort of tap into what, so for example, it's like like dementia, there may be certain pathways where, you know, they're so broken down Mm -hmm. and deteriorated that there's always other ways of getting round to certain sort of memories or situations yeah i mean one of the ladies with dementia used to care care for she would just sing um the little doggy in the window and forever blowing bubbles there were two songs she'd sing all the time Mm -hmm. but she would just be so happy when she was singing them and you just know that just that that different that part of the brain is still able to have you know fun and memories and they're the sort of things that you should focus on in care what parts of the communication can we get to mm-hmm. and not focus so much on what people aren't able to do you think that's a method of treatment maybe or can be yeah can be developed as one can um, see that true um so yeah like i i think all three of us here are in harmony with the idea that it's so interdisciplinary to come to an approach towards a therapeutic approach or a research approach as such. But like, um, like given the fact that neuroscience, psychology, all of them are pretty much interlinked with other branches as well, like whether it, whether it is with medicine, like the neurology bit, or like um, even like the cognitive behavioral therapists as well, like, and then the industry level as well. Like there is so much that needs to be linked. Yeah, so, absolutely. If I were to ask you, um, since you're in your final years of PhD and you're almost about to be Dr. Emily, almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would really want to uh, know, like, what's ahead of us now? Like, what do you expect uh, to happen in the near future when it comes to the sciences related to brain? Um, I mean, the one thing is it's becoming a lot easier to take things like brain imaging outside of the lab mm-hmm. um so i mean i'm very big on sort of field studies but there's only so much we can measure brain activity in field studies so I, I have seen that there there's um portable mobile eegs yeah. um so that's something that sort of once i've got my phd it would be great to take out i'm hoping as well <laughs> I, I hope that my if we can if that. we can get some funding for anglia ruskin to get a mobile eeg set of equipment then we can all go out and do some great research of that um and i'm really interested in sort of i mean eye tracking has been coming leaps and bounds um in previous years but there's still a lot of uncertainty about how to interpret eye movements mm. um and what could be a potentially very objective measure still has a lot of subjectivity to it so for example if you've got a long fixation duration it might mean that someone's really interested in what they're looking at or it might mean someone's completely bored um there's so much variation in how to interpret the same eye movements under different contexts you measure pupil dilation in eye movement don't you as well so that's not what 
we've looked at um, oh, yeah? so but you can look at pupil dilation mm-hmm. um, and um, there's a lot of different sort of inter- interpretations of pupil dilation as yes. well um, so what my research is mainly looking at is to try and find a objective measure of effortless attention so oh that's tough yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but that is what sort of the hope is that through my research we'll be able to have a more objective way of looking at the eye tracking data that other researchers looked at because researchers largely compared eye tracking data looking at nature from eye tracking data looking at built environments um, and really all you can get when you're comparing the two is this is how the eye moves when you're looking at nature this is how the eye moves when you're looking at you know built environments that have a lot more uh, straight lines and mm-hmm. corners and edges um, so by looking at fascination um, within both natural and built environments, um, my research hopes to find a way of measuring effortless attention that's independent from naturalness. So it doesn't matter what environment that you're looking at, but you know if you're using a particular kind of eye movement. So the one that we found most effective is the average saccade amplitude. I was going to say micro saccades in that, in that area. Yeah, yeah, so micro saccades are difficult to measure um, in, in my line of research mm-hmm. um, and particularly sort of out in the field. Of course. Um, because there's a lot of interac- uh, inter- interference from like UV light. So, oh, uh, and okay. also when you're using my mobile eye tracking, um, it's difficult as well to determine the differences between head movements and eye movements. Um, so we've, we've worked out how to measure fascination or as, as, as close as we can get to under lab conditions and now what we're doing is to see whether we can take that into the real world mm-hmm. um, and then like I say if we could find a bit of funding and some mobile EEG equipment that would be a great next study that would be <laughs> awesome that would be really interesting to yeah look at. absolutely yeah. now I just need to get portable fMRIs that's the next step right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people running around with huge magnets on their heads but you could, yeah you could have it like a halo or something I'm sure there's some technology that Maybe. could do it one day have you guys seen the new uh, magnetic encephalogram stuff like the stuff where it's like a mask and you wear it on your head and you can move around and you don't have to be in a single location I, th- I think I've looked at it like I think it was in one of the posts on LinkedIn yeah, maybe. Yeah. University of uh, Nottingham Trent, I think, were the ones that were that doing it. That I don't recall, unfortunately. Uh, I forget, but there was a researcher doing that stuff, and that seemed like really interesting stuff. Like, if you take it outside of the lab, that's the really good stuff, but getting a really good meg signal, even if it's just the um, uh, anterior of the brain, that's still cool to look at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rightly said, like, uh, we definitely need more and more technology influencing towards our research, because I think we definitely need that yeah um and like i said like um i was and i'm still planning on doing this mobile eeg study for my experiments as well and um like but also i want to do transcranial magnetic stimulation as well at some point okay yeah um if that happens during my phd oh god like i'll be on cloud number nine (laughs) (laughs) but we'll see we'll see (laughs) we should have the equipment we do have the we could just yeah, do yeah. it for fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, Bring we, it on in here, man. Podcast right yeah. now. I want to zap your broker's area and see what happens. <laughs> Turn it into uh, a game show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some funny stuff happening there. Yeah. Like, you should try playing video games just when you zap an area of your brain. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. Try. We Start a Twitch try. account. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. We did think of that, didn't we? Yeah. We thought about uh, playing, like, Smash, and every time that um, your heart rate went over a specific... Uh, uh, BPM, you got zapped. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah we thought about 
We just um, won't tell the ethics committee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> ethics can't breathe a word of this, guys. Doesn't leave no. this room. No. Um, not at all. No, okay. not. Doesn't leave this room at all. Oh, all no yeah, audio like, signals going except on. Except for the here. audio, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, very interesting. And um, also, like, um, if I were to ask you, like, following up on this, like, we got an idea of where this is heading to, but if you had to suggest something for the budding neuroenthusiasts, what would you suggest them? Like, I mean, of course, like, we came through different journeys and then like um you coming from uh your like you had interest in the darker side of psychology <laughs> then towards consumer psychology and now you're studying attention fascination and yeah like i know like things change a lot when the journey is made especially um, phd yeah, yeah. definitely <laughs> so what would you what advice or what suggestions would you have for the budding neuroenthusiasts? Um, I mean, like you say, things change and you may not end up in the area of research that you first set out to go into. Um, so just keep an open mind to different areas and try and find different things that interest you across the different areas and different fields. Don't stick yourself in one basket and say, I'm only ever going to be a social psychologist or something or I'm only ever going to look at this particular area because although we need people who are highly specialised in certain areas and at some point in your career you have to become specialised in a particular area um, it's always good to see what different things within the different fields might interest you and also to have a bit of courage in yourself to not sort of um, so neuroscience when you're in your early stages even just reading a paper in neuropsychology can seem very daunting it can make you feel like you're not very intelligent if you, there's a lot of words that you don't understand um, mm -hmm. but just have the confidence to feel silly uh, and learn stuff and don't think oh I don't understand that it goes over my head sort of push yourself to read things and watch things that you may not understand but the more you expose yourself to will help you understand in mm -hmm. uh, particularly in such a complex area such as neuropsychology uh hugely yeah would you say um learning the different areas of the brain and certainly learning regions of interest but learning all the jargon that's kind of tossed around do you think that's a bit of a a reason for some people why they don't go into neuropsychology uh, I, I think that it can be off-putting if you're reading um, a journal, a, science, like a, a, a paper in a journal, and you don't understand what the concepts mean. I think it can just, it might feel like you're reading a foreign language that you don't understand and therefore you feel defeated by it. Yeah. Um, and going from sort of an attentional psychology point of view, it can be overwhelming when you're coming across words that you don't understand and therefore you become more fatigued and the more fatigued you come, the harder it is to get your head round. Sure. Um, so if you are struggling with those, then there's no harm in, you know, we've got brilliant technology now. If you don't understand a word in a paper that you're reading, you can click on that word and search for it in Google. And don't be afraid to feel silly sometimes that you do have to search things because being part is all about learning how not to be silly and having confidence in, you know, uh, not always feeling like the smartest person in the room and being able to ask questions that you don't know the answer to. Very true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, true. And I'm also aware that you're a lecturer. So well, associate. Associate. Lecturer. <laughs> that counts. It's in the that title. <laughs> Let's get you under that one big umbrella. Yeah. So, um, 
how's your experience been being an associate lecturer because you interact with students who are just getting into this field and you're seeing their struggles and anticipations like what's what's your say on that like I, I really enjoy it I mean I think um helping students so a lot of what I teach them in their first year is statistics and experimental design and we do often have tears in the lesson and mm. people feeling up, upset and frustrated and feeling like they're stupid and they can't do it um, and as much as you don't like seeing that in students I do enjoy helping them get through that and making them realise you know t- 10 years ago nearly it was me sat there crying thinking that I was stupid and I've managed to get to where I am just through pushing forward and you know not letting that kind of put me off where I was going um, and I think it's it, it's really eye opening to be able to help people feel confident in themselves and feel sort of passionate about what they're learning yeah. um, but at first it was very very scary I mean I wasn't very good at public speaking um, and it sounded like I was going to cry most of the time when I'd be teaching lessons because I couldn't get any pitch control in my voice or I couldn't regulate my breathing so it was a really difficult um beginning period but it was definitely it's paid off um since then that's good do you, do you think that there is a difference between when you were a student and students now or do the, well difficulties are probably still there but attitude wise do you think there's um, a bit of a difference i don't know i mean i like to think that i'm not as old much older than my students as i actually am um it's not until i realize how old they see me as that i realize that i actually am like a fair bit older <laughs> than them um but i mean i so as i've been an undergraduate since like i said 2012 at this university i've seen the um, materials change and develop and i think they've got really good materials that have teach the lecturers here have sort of worked year after year to change and develop and respond to feedback and respond to sort of things that Mm. didn't work or did work um and i think that you know in that way the university is only growing and growing in what it can offer the students um that's good to know yes especially because i did my undergrad here as well and i look back at the lectures that like my professor produces and i'm going that's way different from what i was taught yeah, like, especially like how action potentials that stumped everybody when we were learning about it in biopsychology, right. and now that he explains it kind of like a, a water pump, now everyone gets it all the same. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, and that's the thing, and that's sort of a really beautiful thing about teaching is learning what works in mm-hmm. helping other people understand, because it can just take that one way of explaining things that makes it click, mm-hmm. and then that person goes away with a lot more confidence in what they're capable of understanding. You try and un- you try and explain something really badly, that person walks away feeling like they're the one that's silly, not that the teacher's the one who's not explaining it properly. Because as a student, you don't know. You, you think it is that you that's stupid. You don't think that the university's taught you in a bad way. You just think that you can't understand what they're teaching you. But as you become a teacher, you realise that there's different ways of reaching different learning outcomes and goals. True. Um, so... How do you see yourself proceeding ahead from here? Do you see yourself more in academia or do you see yourself more in just like the research field as a principal investigator or do you want to transition towards the industrial bit or the corporate <laughs> um, bit? Like, I mean, I would, I would like to sort of go on and, and be a, a fully-fledged lecturer rather than okay. just an associate lecturer. Um, but, I mean, there are people who say to leave that 
until later in your career. Some people advise that you do the research thing first, get loads of publications out, and then go and take a lecture position once you've got that under your belt. Um, but I just really enjoy the teaching, so I th feel like being able to do research alongside teaching students and designing course materials um, is something that I'm quite happy to go straight into rather than waiting some time. That's brilliant. That's good. Yeah. yeah. We're looking forward to great teachers and mm. lecturers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we've pretty much reached the end of our gate here. It is, we've been recording for a good few minutes, and I, I'm, I'm cautious that you have to uh, get to your uh, second... second vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> that's exciting. Yes. Yeah. These are dire times. Very much so. Hey, but hey, soon enough, guys, right? You know, yeah. Yeah, counting down the days, yep. hopefully... Yeah. yeah, at least we can see each other face to face. We've come a long way. Yeah, <laughs> no, I bet. Imagine this saying this a year ago. I would have told you you're mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning into the, I guess, second official uh, Neurogether podcast. Yeah. And we were very lucky to have the soon to be doctor, Emily McKendrick, with us today. Thank you. Emily, it was very good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And it, uh, it's been good for the last. Yeah, it's been good, guys. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we look forward to having many more podcasts with many more amazing stories to share. And I guess we could call it a wrap. Yeah, it's called a wrap there. Awesome, then. Yeah. Right. Thank you, guys, for listening. Adios.